Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back to the podcast show, everybody. It's your host, John Sardina. Man, we're so excited for this episode. We have Jason Cradiville on here. He's the interim director for the National Center on Security and Preparedness. He's been there for almost nine years. He's had several positions there. Before that, he was with the Project of Violent Conflict. He did that for four years. He's also been with the State Department. Really great experience and can give that that wealth of knowledge uh, for us. We really want to produce better emergency managers. And what Jason's doing up there is just phenomenal work. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me. So you've done all these different things over the last you know, 10, 15 years where you're able to go in there and to help us out uh, try to become better in what we do. And you have said that, you know, as, as mentioned, that what you do is that intersection between research and training. What does that niche market really look like? And why do you think it's impacting the field? Uh, sure. And, um, you know, without actually going all the way back to the beginning, um, I did grow up as a middle child. And any middle child will tell you after they tell you their tale of woe, that they're influenced by both other siblings, the older and the younger, um, and that also they end up being a broker between the two. And so that's probably the best metaphor I can use to describe where, where I and, and, and my team have been really fortunate in that we've been a major part of practical side training and exercises that have caused a ton of change, especially in New York State, um, on the practitioner side, but also in the, this burgeoning emergency management program at UAlbany on the research and academic side. Um, and that really has positioned us well to you know, think about the ideas that researchers have and bring them across the fatal chasm and into the field. You know, the fatal chasm being that, that dreaded implementation hole that so many ideas fall into. Um, and so, uh, and then on the flip side, bringing those lessons back from the field and linking them to the type of research um, that's really advancing the field. So it becomes sort of a feedback loop that we help, um, we're a catalyst for. So, so how do you take that and how do you say, hey, here are the, all these projects, because we would like to ask you some about some of those projects that you worked on or the, those trainings. How do you get people to actually implement that? So it's really about being empathetic and understanding the perspective of both sides and really being able to listen to what so we on our team have an incredible team of um, practical side subject matter experts and then at the college we have some really top flight researchers so it's, it's kind of sitting down hearing them out thinking about how they're thinking about this 
versus, you know, say how a researcher is thinking about this versus how a practitioner is thinking about this and being able to sort of almost translate the two. Um, and, and of course, there are some, um, you know, practical side folks who are good at bridging and some researchers who are good at bridging. But I think that in general, the, there's different vocabularies, you're thinking about it differently. Mm. What you've got to do is basically help the one side be empathetic to what the other side is thinking. I'll give you an example. So we, I'll talk a lot about some of the work that we're doing with our um, atmospheric and environmental sciences department at the university. And you know, we were in one, one meeting and discussion where a researcher said, you know what, we've got to take out the low probability model because it's just, it, it's confusing. It, it's adding you know, all of this noise to the model and we should just take it out. What I said was, well, no, I think an emergency manager would tell you that if that low, low probability is high consequence, it's still somewhere in that risk spectrum where you want to know about it, especially if you're looking at something that might hit two different jurisdictions. If there's even a low probability something's going to hit New York City, say a storm, they're going to want to know that at least it's in the cards and so that they can then assess their risk. Um, so that's just an example of where I think we kind of help bridge it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I it made me think of, okay, what's the, the, the low probability of a high consequence? I mean, even an active shooter, which seems to be a high probability, if you compare it to the number of schools out there, compared to the number of businesses, it's still really low probability, but the consequence is so high that we want to train people. And uh, I developed this thing where I, I, I looked at per hazard and I said, okay, what's the thing that's most important? Is it the, the people, usually that's the answer, right? That life, property, or continuity of operations. In some things in the federal government, that coop absolutely has to happen or so many other dominoes uh, fall, right? And so I think that's excellent that you call that out. And it's a good call out to emergency managers that if you're doing hazard vulnerability assessments, uh, you need to, to, to be aware of that. And, and really good for those researchers too. I mean, um, the, the hardest thing for a practitioner is to deal with researchers who don't speak their language. How do you get into this uh, area where you're able to speak two different languages and especially to the practitioner side, those guys who don't care about research, who don't care about data, who are like, I was a cop for 30 years, or I was a firefighter for 30 years, I know my niche area. How do you convince them? What would be your pitch to them? So I think there's a couple facets to it. The first one is that regardless of any of those fields that you mentioned, you, you use data and what data can do in terms of reducing complexity all the time. So here's a really operational example. Um, you know, anybody who's done any medical response is familiar with uh, triage and, you know, especially in, in the context of a mass casualty incident. And so basically, if you think about triage and its component parts, really what you're doing is you're collecting complex medical data on one patient that's in front of you and basically distilling that down into one data point, sake of argument, red, green, yellow, which then means something and you can help categorize it. And so now you've taken all of that complexity and distilled it down to one data point because you know that you're gonna have you know, 30 other data points on scene with that same complexity and you can't possibly keep all that in your head. That's data management. You've created an algorithm to basically distill down that, that complexity. But the cautionary tale and where I think people get hung up is that even in triage, if you don't practice it, you don't default to it and it doesn't work. So uh, for example, we did a, a course on MCI management and um, 
what we would do is we'd bring people through the triage process, we'd have them practice it with patient cards, but then we'd put them in a scenario with live patients, moulage, et cetera. And um, inevitably we'd have somebody there who maybe has a, a piece of glass sticking out of the side of their neck where you can tell there's no arterial bleeding, they're screaming, so you can tell there's not really any, any damage, but they're freaking out. And the amount of times it's moth to the flame on that patient versus three others who are on the ground and what we use it as is a learning point to say, it's not just about building the tool. It's not just about having the tool tied to your operational environment. It's building the process and the habit where you actually use it when the proverbial stuff hits the fan. And, and so that's, that's our pitch is that's the gap. That's what you have to do to really make it usable um, and not just a good idea. Yeah, that's awesome because uh, you just, I mean, that's a perfect example because what you're saying is you are already doing this. We're just teaching you the language because it will help you improve your processes. Right. Um, we had Rodney on here uh, several, Rodney Melsick on here several weeks ago, and he talked about process is as important or more important than the, than the outcome. Uh, I'm one of those who think, sees it as equal for sure. But what you're saying right now is that that, that data point that he was pitching is, uh, is accurate, you know? And so if, if I'm an emergency manager, if I'm a practitioner and I'm already kind of doing this and I'm listening to what you're saying now and what you're saying is data is ex extremely important, the acquisition and how to process information is extremely important. What are some of those tools out there that the future emergency manager would need to have? So I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's how it's normally uh, conceptualized is what's the next tool? What, what should I be focused on? And I think COVID-19 has given us an example where you can try and think ahead about what that tool is going to be, but you don't know, right? How many apps have now come out that are, that are claimed to be the panacea on contact tracing, which is such an important part of the COVID response. Um, and how do you cut through that sea of complexity? So what I would, I would say is that instead of focusing on the tools, focus on the mission, and what you're trying to accomplish and how it can be easier and know how to, how to bridge it. So I'll give you an example. So uh, unmanned aircraft systems, we built, we built training on, on how to implement un unmanned aircraft systems in your, in your community. And we worked with one of our local sheriff's offices as, as one of our partners who um, they have, a, they're a bit unique. They have a sheriff's, they're the sheriff's office. They're also the emergency manager and the county EMS. So they have a, you know, a good perspective. The now chief who's over their UAS program will tell you that when he started, he had no technical understanding of what the UAS was, what the downlink is, how the downlink connects to your phone or your computer or your boss's phone, but he didn't need to. He understood law enforcement missions, emergency management missions, and EMS missions so well that he could basically you know, look at this tool and go, okay, but what can that do for me? And he's one of the most respected people in the state. And I also think nationally in the ability to sort of prototype through products, not again, not because he understands any of the technical capacity, but he knows how to look at how technology impacts process because he's an expert on the process and the process is what drives your outcome. Um, and so that's what I would push towards is don't focus on the tool, focus on understanding how to take any tool and tie it to your operational mission. If you have that skill set, you'll keep ahead of the curve on what has been just lightning speed technology change 
especially when a disaster hits. Yeah, technology changes uh, can happen seriously in an instant. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, drones. I implemented drones for the federal government, um, as you as you know. We we looked at that for a really long time. But Hurricane Harvey, I mean, we were just trying to find any way to get data as fast as possible. And, you know, oh, there's this newer technology. We were looking at it. Let's just do it. Well, so speaking to the argument, did you did you notice that it was the same thing for you where you, you maybe had a little bit of technical background, but you didn't know how UAS operated. And that's kind of not the point. You knew what it needed to do. Would you agree yeah. with that with that statement? I was in charge of satellites, drones. Um, the Cessna airplanes, all this type of data. I can't fly a plane. I don't. I don't know the, you know, the technical components of a satellite. I do know the type of images that I needed to get, and I need to know uh, from a data, from a GIS perspective. I needed to learn how images were were captured, and so there is a call out that says, "Hey, like, I, I might not know everything. I want to implement it, but you should start to learn how that works because." There's lots of different types of drones, lots of different types of satellites. Just like a newer technology, you should know how to use it once you, once you see that it could, could help you out or get the right people in the field to do, be able to do that. Right. And I, I think that's what emergency managers do all the time. If you're, you, if you're in a room as an emergency manager, chances are you're surrounded by people who know more than you about each of their individual areas. Your job is to then take that together and, and bring that together and, and move it towards a unified outcome. And so I think that, you know, sometimes I feel like we shy away from technology, right? It's like, okay, I'll learn a little bit about law enforcement. I'll learn a little bit about public works. I'll learn a little bit, about, but, you know, technology falls in the same. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. You actually said two really good things there. A great emergency manager and pull in all the right people to, to make a, a better decision. Um, but the other thing about that, that you're, you brought up, uh, you're talking about uh, implementing this data. Our goal at the end of the day is life-saving, life-sustaining. Uh, you want to figure out how to do that as fast as possible. Right. Data can do that for you. And that's, that's half that pitch, right? Not only to be able to be intelligent enough to say, hey, what can this do for me? But to say, if I want to save lives, I need to know where to go. I need to know how to get there the fastest. I need to be able to collect that information. So, you know, great call out there. Um, so let's switch gears just a little bit here because we're talking, we're talking about some of the tools. We've talked about drones. We're talking about uh, collecting that and bridging that gap. But let's talk a lot more about actually understanding that data, um, you know, data-driven decisions and understanding it. How do you reconcile um, that really common phrase, 80% solution is enough, that mentality, with constant drive from pretty much everybody uh, to, to want perfect answers at all times, because it just isn't possible in a disaster. Absolutely. And I think for whatever reason, you know, I think everybody is used to working with imperfect information, but then for some reason, when data gets involved, then that, that's difficult to compute. Um, and I, I think you talked in an earlier uh, episode, of, a very early episode about there's no such thing as the boy who cried wolf. Right. And so where I'd start off right at the beginning is say, you know, you're looking at your weather app and it says there's an 80 percent chance it's going to rain and you bring your umbrella with you and then it doesn't rain. Did you really make the wrong decision? 
and some people would say yes. And then I would add to that, well, did you wear a seatbelt on your way here today? Well, yes. Did you get in a car accident? No. Did you make the wrong decision? You're, you're mitigating your risk in, in, and you can use data to do that, to understand how the cost of, in this case, carrying an umbrella around with you, right? Which is sometimes a little annoying. How worth it it is based on the risk that you might get rained on. Um, and, and so it's a simple example, but I think it gets to the heart of the fact that data doesn't make decisions, it informs decisions. Um, and that continues to be our pitch when we're talking to emergency managers and, and actually think that researchers really back it up. That's a big frustration for them is that, you know, somebody will get up and say on the weather side, well, the Euro model is always the most accurate. That leads to the to the feeling that you need that data management and using data is about picking the winning model. And it's mm. not, it's about, use, it's about understanding what each of the models consider and using that to best inform your decision. And if you create the expectation that it's your job to pick the best model, then you're really over promising and setting yourself up to under deliver on what data can do for you. Um, and that then erodes people's confidence in data more. Um, and so that's my, my overall pitch there is we have to shift our mindset on that and realize that really what it's doing is it's allowing us to take the highest probability solution to, or, or approach to mitigating as much of the risk as possible. And it gives us really good data on what the risk is so that we know, and the impact of what we're trying to do. So COVID is a good example, right? Where, you know, there's the economic impacts of the shutdown versus the public health benefits of the shutdown, but then also the long-term economic benefits of shutting down for a little while to then, you know, be able to reopen like say New York state right now is longer term. What the data and the models help you to do is realize, you know what, life safety is most important. So I'm going to prioritize that. How do I reduce my percentages or my numbers on the number of people who are going to be negatively impacted by this, either by getting sick or by dying. Um, and, and so that's what you've got to focus on. And you, this, we need to make an entire episode just of what, what you just said right there. There's so many points. Um, and I, I'll get to the point where I'll have to edit this out because I'll be talking too much. <laughs> and wearing a mask is so low on the totem pole of like, oh, you know, I thought, two seconds, you can have a mask on and you're potentially mitigating a, a massive disaster. And a massive disaster is somebody else dying from the, you know, if you had COVID, right? Um, it's so selfish to think like, uh, I, I don't know, I try not to offend anybody, but people who don't wear a mask at this point, like, I don't care about, I, I don't know. I, I want to get them on board at the same time. It's like, man, like what you're doing now is selfish. What, what I would, where I would double down on that is a lot of times you'll hear people say that, you know, we have to fight for our safety and our country and, you know, we got to you know, be in the foxhole together and everything else. And literally the, one of the lowest impact things that you could be asked to do by your country, lowest level sacrifices, putting a piece of cloth over your face. If you can't do that, how am I, how am I believing that you're going to sacrifice more when, when other stuff is going to happen, right? It's all part of that same spectrum. Yeah. The, the irony of, Okay, we'll do it from an emergency management perspective. If you want to reopen schools, if you want to reopen the economy, if you want to get back to normal, which is the argument, right? I don't want to wear a mask because everything's actually fine. 
I actually don't believe it. That's what it really comes down to. Um, so I agree with you. Uh, versus the other side of the spectrum where you've looked at the data and you, or, or you know people who've been impacted. Either way, people want normal. But the same people who are, are not wearing masks to treat it like everything's normal are the same people are, are the reason why things are still shut down. Right. So if everybody just wore a mask, uh, quarantined a little bit more, we'd actually be able to reopen everything much faster. But this, I think this does get to the problem with data. And it does get to the problem with data when you talk about the public is if, if I'm trying to protect myself and my family, I'm thinking of it from that micro perspective. Data and, their, and, and correspondingly the decisions that emergency managers and policymakers and politicians are making are about the aggregate. And so, you know, even I think there's, there's got to be some empathy for the fact that, you know, I can say to you that on balance, the economy will be better if businesses stay closed for a little while, because then you're not going to have a much more protracted period of being open when we don't have control of the, or being closed when we don't have control of the virus. I can say that if a business owner comes back to me and says, yeah, but I can't afford to close for that period of time. Mm then it doesn't matter to that individual business person. And so yeah. it's hard, I think, for people to connect the micro to the macro. And um, we see that across society. We see that with voting. We see that with, with any sort of participatory thing. Is It's hard to see the collective impact of our individual actions in that way. Data helps with that. But at the same time, from a personal perspective, it's difficult. And that's the challenge emergency managers face is, is trying to get people to think more in the aggregate. In a slow onset disaster, it is so extremely hard to convince people that it's actually happening. When the entire world is in a pandemic, they don't want to think of pre-disaster plans, but they should, but they should do that. Uh, but you can't do in-person training, so what do you do? Right. And, uh, but, but I know that. I know that, okay, I, I could suffer here, but I don't want to cause other people to suffering. It, it is a sacrifice. Um, yeah, it's a great call out. So, so let's talk about the, the different perspectives thing, because you talked about the general public a little bit. And data is imperfect. Data changes. We get, we get better data, and after actions teach us uh, a lot about that data and what was good and what was bad. Sometimes people try to do their after action too quickly, right? And like, especially in the pandemic. They're doing the after actions already. It's like not even close. But um, how do you... Let's, let's take those three, three groups. Emergency managers, which is our main body. But we really, uh, kind of like that middle child uh, idea is we actually coordinate between first responders and politicians. So emergency management, how do you convince politicians to use data and to be okay with imperfect data? And then finally, the general public. Kind of a three-part question. Yeah, I got you. And I, but I think that the answer, I think they're linked because the answer is, is the same across at its core, which is you need to really invest in understanding that other person or viewpoint's perspective. Um, and then once you do that, that enables you to take the second step, which is to show them the value add of what you're asking them to do to their world and what they're trying to do. So for emergency managers, we've already talked about that a little bit, right? We, we talked about data actually does help you make better informed decisions faster. 
And really the only challenge for emergency managers talking to fellow emergency managers is not assuming that they're realizing that right off the bat, understanding and, and really listening to what their personal barriers are to potentially agreeing with what you're trying to get them to do. For um, politicians, you know, without getting too far into, into elections, what I would say is that in general, their job is to be accountable for the decisions that they're making. And they know that they're going to be held to account either way. And so there's really two perspectives to that. One, you've got to show them that it's going to help them make a better decision. Um, but on the other hand, you can't take it so far where that politician is then, is then using the data as a mask to say, I didn't make the decision, the data did because then that politician is now again overpromising and potentially underdelivering on behalf of the data. But you've got to kind of understand the, the allure of that and get them to see the longer term end game of, right, but what you're doing is you are making it harder the next time you say you're listening to the data by setting the expectation that the data is going to make the right decision for you. And so, you know, that, that's the politician side. And then for the public, it's again, understanding that by and large, their perspective, our perspective as the public is to think about our survival and the survival of our families first and what we're trying to do. And it's easy as somebody who, who maybe isn't as impacted by it to say, yeah, you know, for this hurricane, why didn't these people leave their house? And what you'll see is that if a hurricane hits that area, those same people aren't. And it's not hypocrisy. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. And so you have to understand where that's coming from. And um, really sell exactly what you talked about, which is it's not wear a mask because you're a bad person if you don't. It's wear a mask so that we can get this outcome that has value for you. And our, what our crisis communication experts, especially on the academic side, say is from a research perspective that it's far more effective than the negative response to it is to say, no, what, you're do, what you need to do is wear a mask so that businesses can or get back open so that schools can be open so that kids can be in school and learning while their parents are working mm. you you recognize that you recognize what that individual wants and how to tie what you're asking them to do to what they want there is an argument for um, trying to understand what's popular for each group what's popular mm. to an emergency manager is not necessarily what's popular to a politician or the general public uh, what's popular to an emergency manager um, is typically life-saving, life-sustaining. That That's kind of my mentality, but the mentality of a politician uh, might be different. It might be, hey, we're worried about if, if we don't get through this election cycle, all these goals that we have for people or for whatever won't happen. So I have to stay elected. I want to stay elected. Other people, it's like, oh, it's my last term you know, whatever. So you start to see those actions starting to change. And then general public, I, I think you're totally right. Uh, how, what's going to happen to me and my family? Right. And the professor, the professor that I worked with on the um, Project for Violent Conflict, who I still actually talked to him yesterday, um, he's an incredible teacher. And what he, what he, one of the things he teaches is bargaining and negotiation and how it ties to violence and how it ties to emergency management. And he uses this really simple example where you and your roommate are arguing over whether or not the window should be open. And he makes you go through this whole exercise. And at the end, you find out that you want the window open because it's hot in there. 
and your roommate doesn't want the window open because there's not a screen on the window. So there's actually mm. an integrative solution there, right? And so if all your I, I, emergency managers are thinking about it from a life safety perspective, but if all you do is argue from your perspective and why you think it works, you're missing an opportunity to find a way to tie it to what that other person wants. And mm. it, it ceases to be about bargaining back and forth and haggling over which is more important and realizing that there's a solution that actually helps both. And what yeah. public health experts and emergency management experts tell us is that wearing masks, distancing, closing what should be closed and contact tracing help public health and long-term help the economy. You've said something that I really like. In fact, uh, I read this and I was like, oh man, we have to, we actually have to say this. So you said decision makers need to link scientific data with risk. This is also a key element in professionalizing the field. Professionalizing the field is what kind of got me there because emergency management is changing rapidly, especially after, you know, the stand-up of Department of Homeland Security um, and 2000, 2001 with the, the attack of 9-11 was so much changing and implementing professionalism or that next phase of professionalism. Talk us through a little bit more about what you meant there. So I think we've talked a lot about how data can help an emergency manager and also an emergency manager's role in being able to take, you know, seven, eight, ten complex different disciplines and bring them together to make some decisions about what we need to do. Um, data is at the core of that. Um, and we've talked about the value of it. We've talked about how it's, how it's a value add to what you're trying to do if you can both use it and explain what it can do and what it can't do. Um, and, and for that reason, it's been a major focus of some of the programs we've been involved in here at the university where uh, we actually merged, the university actually merged our emergency management school and our um, informatics school to really try and drive home the fact that if you're trying to understand complexity, data is how you do it. I'm also pretty passionate about it now because we're right on the cusp of AI and then a little bit further out quantum computing, artificial intelligence and quantum computing, really starting to have an impact on what we're doing. And the challenge with those tools is they, they look at so much data in such an abstract way that it becomes harder and harder to understand what the data can and can't do. And so we have to sort of build into people's lexicons and habit structures that data doesn't, that this is how you analyze data to inform your decision, it doesn't make your decision for you. Where I think we could end up is that, you know, AI and again, later quantum computing is feeding into to data models will make the data so effective that we defer to it for decisions instead of continuing to use it to make decisions, to recognize um, something, again, I think you talked about in that earlier data podcast that that data needs to be linked with your experience as an emergency manager, your understanding of the people and the human beings involved and what they're valuing. Um, that emergency managers are sitting right in that spot. And it's going to be harder and harder to be effective in that role without an understanding for what data can and can't do for you. The expectation of the general public is um, immediate. They want immediate information, immediate updates. Uh, technology has really driven that. And technology is um, having this weird place with the pandemic right now because they, they can't keep up, right? Uh, updates, things are breaking, things are taking a little bit longer, and that's frustrating people. 
but emergency managers, you're trying to deal with the expectations of immediate information. If the general public and or your superiors don't understand that a, a, a training changes everything, you have to be able to take be able to take imperfect information, make decisions, last in the neck kind of scenarios, and then do after actions on that. And the more and more you do that, you're able to walk into the situation and be able to scan and say, okay, last in the neck, but you know, no bleed, breathing, whatever. Um, you know, they're they're doing they're doing better than what it looks like. People say, well, I have my technologist over here. And it was interesting. I was talking to um, somebody who worked in an Air Force research lab who talked about how wired um, things like helicopters and, and, oh. and other military equipment is at this point. And that if you're going to be working on it and understanding it, you have to understand that side of it too and the vulnerabilities that it creates. And that that is a, is a cultural shift. Um, and, and I think it's the same for car mechanics, right? It used to be you know, you could just go in there and fix it. Now everything is so computerized that you have to understand how the computer systems will work to be able to fix a car. And I think that's where we end up too. I think that's the other side of it, right? Is what can data do for our operational decisions, but also technology is so interwoven into how we operate that you can no longer afford to have somebody else responsible for understanding it. You have to add that to your risk calculus as an emergency manager too. And that's a skill set that you can build. My brother-in-law, John, I haven't talked on here yet. Shout out to that guy. He's a phenomenal pilot. He also, because of my father-in-law um, and his time at Boeing, um, they literally build their own Cessna. They're, they're like building the plane and they're, they're updating it. And the guy, I think, is so great as a pilot because he, he understands how the mechanics work. So step one was, what can this do for me and get me up in the air? Step two was, let me figure out how this works. And uh, I've been in the air with him and just be able to ha- be able to walk that through or uh, we'll go to the hangar and he'll be working on it. And I, I'm just so impressed. Uh, and that has great analogies to emergency managers. Emergency managers of the future will not be able to operate without data. They will not be able to operate effectively if they don't understand how that data works. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, it, it's okay that it's, imperfect the data is imperfect because it always is really but to know how it's imperfect you know uh, and why it's imperfect uh, are, are important questions and you've said on here this podcast several times data informed decisions now i think that like the that coined difference between data driven decisions and data informed decisions i think it's to the same goal of be able to take data and then use your experience training and background to, to make a better decision. Um, but it is, like you've said several times, it is very dangerous to make a decision solely based off of the data, um, especially if you don't know how that works. And the, the easiest example is with weather, to be honest. People yeah. look at the cone. They don't know how the cone works. So that's where the, the hurricane's going. And uh, they start evacuating or they start making decisions, right? If somebody doesn't, uh, make a, a great decision. They see the cone and they try to evacuate all, the, all those people. But then the general public gets there and they say, there was no hurricane. I think there was uh, one um, really prime example, actually in New York, several years ago, there was supposed to be a snowstorm in New York City and it didn't hit. Uh, you're, yeah, you're not in your head there. Yep. Uh, 
I remember the general public being like, this is so dumb. Like, I'm not going to trust this in the future. And uh, understanding that there's no such thing as boycott rules. Like, the worst thing that happened to you that day is that you had to stay home, right? Like, right. you were fine. How do you, how do you deal with that, though? Like, we have, we're going to be wrong, right? I mean, sometimes you have, sometimes you're just incompetent and you don't know how, how it works and you're, you don't reach out to the right people. Other times, it's just incomplete. When, when you lose the public's trust, how do you even get that back? I mean, how do you manage that? I think that you've got to, so there's two, there's two approaches to take to it, right? One is always trying to increase the accuracy of what, what you're doing. It's talking to a researcher who looks at early warning systems and mm-hmm. um, talks about how, you know, the narrowing of the, of the zone where that goes out, because if you continue to get early warnings that then aren't applicable to you, you just get turned it off on your phone and that's not a good outcome, right? Um, but, um, so you've always got to try and increase the accuracy. That's also some of the weather work that we're doing and stuff that we're working on. What the, what our atmospheric sciences, this scientists at the university are working on is, um, making the forecast more accurate. But at the same time, that same project is also working on how do you communicate to the public about what those forecasts can and can't do, what they say and don't say and how they impact risk. I actually think that's a good example where we just got hit with a tropical storm, um, you know, right up here, the, the plaza that our office is in got flooded and a window came off of the, off of the building. Oh, holy cow. Um, and the way that the storm hit, it followed pretty much the track, but most of the damage was either in the heavy rain quadrant of the storm, which wasn't right at the center, or the high wind quadrant of the storm, which wasn't at the center, right? So you know, it's, it's getting people to try and understand it at the same time and making sure that when you're communicating, you're communicating the uncertainty. And I feel like that's hard because your inclination when you want people to listen to you is to sound definitive. But really what you're doing is again, setting yourself up to overpromise and underdeliver. I actually think that if you look at the way that Governor Cuomo, especially initially talked about COVID-19 in New York state, he was less getting up there and making definitive statements about what was going to happen and more saying, we don't know. This is the data we're looking at and this is how we're trying to manage that uncertainty. And I think that that, that becomes your crisis communication strategy is making it clear that, yeah, this is precautionary. It's wearing your seatbelt. Again, if you wear your seatbelt and you don't crash, literally nobody says, shouldn't have worn my seatbelt. It's, it's building that habit into the way we're communicating so that we are not setting the expectation that we're going to be right every time. Yeah. What you're talking also about is you're talking from a public information officer, a PIO perspective. Uh, it's really marketing. Um, yeah. I do wonder from a marketing perspective, going back to COVID a little bit, um, if, if we didn't do mandatory but from a marketing perspective, we said, hey, this is United We Stand, United We Mask. Oh, my gosh. I just came up with that. Nice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that down. It's going to be a t-shirt. I like it. Yeah, United We Mask. Yeah. Coin it. Um, here, here first. But if that, if that mentality went out without actually doing public health, you know, I wonder what the research would show versus mandate versus encouragement. 
the problem with encouragement is people don't take it seriously sometimes because they do have to do mandate. It, it's really complex, obviously, but um, from a marketing perspective, man, it, it, it kind of fell on its face a little bit. That was a pun as well. It would be, it'd be interesting to see for sure, but I do think thinking about it from a marketing perspective is important and COVID such a good example because so for a, a hurricane, for example, your impact, your consequence side of your risk equation is impacted by what people do, but the threat isn't as much, right? The storm's going to do what the storm's going to do. There's, a, there's literally a million factors that can influence what it's going to do, but there's not much control you have over that. For the pandemic, we as a society are part of the threat side of that equation, that risk equation, where how the pandemic spreads is a direct function of how people respond to it. And so I, what I hope happens is it encourages the emergency management field to think more about how it's marketing what it's saying. And it's not enough to be right. You have to convince people to do what you want to do. And there is science and art behind that, that, that we can leverage as a field. Okay. So we're running out of time here. Um, but before we do, because you work closely with institutes and researchers and university systems, and because we're, we're dealing with COVID, for those emergency managers who work on campuses right now, it's kind of our August theme a little bit. Um, what would you, what would your general advice to them be is like that reopening strategy or those things that they have to be focusing on right now? Um, I think you're working with a group of people when you're working in that setting. And, and this it, it, academia isn't the only place this is the case. It's in business and everything else where you have to try and do is get, because your leaders are going to be the ones making your decisions, not always your, just your emergency managers. It's got to go up through that. Emergency management is management and emergency. So what you want to try and do is tie it back to how do we make decisions in general? How do we streamline that for this? And then how do we do some, you know, and this is something that, that we often help out with is how do you think about the potential scenarios you have and what individual steps you're going to take in response to those scenarios, really break it down to digestible pieces. Because if you try and think of this as, as a one whole thing, it's completely overwhelming. And so I think, you know, cause you're from a, you know, higher education institutions are so diverse. You, you have athletics programs. It's basically a mini society. You have athletics programs. You have research programs. You, you're trying to educate people. You have employees that have their own concerns and, you know, families and kids that need to go into daycare or, or if they can't, they need to take care of them. All of that complexity can be hard if you don't break it down into digestible pieces and build a structure for making those decisions. And then bring it all together by doing some real scenario-based planning that builds your confidence in, okay, you know what, I think we've kind of got this. And then the second piece of advice is, unfortunately, you're about to head into, anybody who's reopening is about to head into a situation where half the people are going to be mad at them no matter what they do. Mm. And you've got to brace for that and know that you have a plan. Your plan hopefully is driven by expertise, both on how you operate and what's going on in the world and hold true to that plan and not try not to be as beholden to what will definitely happen no matter what you make the voices that are pro and the voices that are con. Um, because it's, it's, it's inevitable that, that again, you know, it's almost going to be 50, 50, especially on social media. Saying that, oh man, social media. 
another topic we could talk about. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but that that advice is sound, and I I totally agree with that advice, uh, especially in a in a campus setting. National Cancer Institute was full of researchers, full of PhDs, um, and at the time I had a bachelor's degree. So, you know, how do you manage those expectations? And what got me on board was doing scenario based and walking them through that plan, helping them understand that, you know, in their field of expertise, they were the best. In my field of expertise, I was absolutely the best. But if they don't know that or trust that, then you got nothing. Right. And what I, what I would add to that too, is that it's not about whether you're right or whether they're right. You have to convince them to think the way you're thinking. And so scenarios help you do that because instead of telling them something, mm -hmm. you're making them experience it. And you're, you're driving your point through the scenario and the consequences in the scenario, not just what you're telling them is going to happen. Yeah. And real world, uh, it's not just saying uh, from an emergency management perspective, you're going to have X number of people who possibly die. Real world is also saying that marketing piece, right? If you do this, this will look really bad on you. Right. You'll have to get in front of a camera and say, I'm very embarrassed right now. And you don't want to do that. And so that, sometimes lowest denominator of like uh, the narcissism is actually where you should go being totally honest for an emergency management standpoint. Yeah. Um, and then the second part of whatever you do, half the people are going to be mad right now. That is, that is also a, a way to de-stress yourself being prepared for that and walking through that scenario. So it's really good. Okay. So, Last part, as we've done for the last several weeks now, we're, we're doing this new thing called rapid fire where we, we end this out where we just ask you some really quick questions, like one, two word answers here. And um, we'll just, we'll end, end with this. Do you sound good with that? Yeah. All right, here we go. What is the emerging technology that gets you the most excited for, to assist emergency managers of the future? From a really geeky perspective, quantum computing. Uh, weather is a good example where right now we do not have the computing power to look at the number of variables that impact what a weather system is doing. With quantum computing, what our researchers tell us is that we actually might. It, it gives you mm. exponentially more computing power to look at more variables. Um, okay, in your professional opinion, what are the top three long-term cultural shifts that will happen due to this pandemic? So some of these are going to be hopeful. I think a greater focus on continuity of operations and business continuity. Uh, I think an increase in remote work and the distribution of a completely different risk equation when it comes to technology because of it. Um, and then the, shoot, I just pulled a Rick Perry. Um, <laughs> and then, right. Um, and then the, right. And then um, um, the, the third um, is I think we're going to see the business landscape change in general and what businesses are effective and what aren't. And it's an underrated thing for emergency managers to understand because business resilience is part of societal resilience. If you're going to choose a new slogan for Albany, would you choose the home of the potato chip or the home of the perforated toilet paper? <laughs> So pre-COVID, I'd say potato chip for sure. But now I think we all have a better appreciation for perforated toilet paper. So let's go with that. <laughs> That's awesome. I was also going to uh, ask you which one is more famous, Aaron Burr or the author of Moby Dick? 
so what I would say Aaron Burr, but the author of Moby Dick grew up like a stone's throw from where I'm currently sitting. So um, oh, that's <laughs> cool. Aaron Burr for sure, especially with uh, Hamilton right now. Oh man, Hamilton's a great play, by the way. Oh yeah. Um, they're not as thought there, but they could be. They wanted to. All right. Uh, let's see. Come on, Lynn. Yeah. Uh, if someone wanted to learn more about the University at Albany or the National Center of Security and Preparedness, where would they go to learn more? Um, so for the university, you can go to albany.edu or for the Homeland Security College, albany.edu slash CEHC. And the best way to follow the, our center is um, via Twitter, via at NCSPUAlbany. Awesome. And finally, what is the best podcast for emergency managers? Disaster Talks. All right, perfect. So you guys heard it from uh, Jason today. A lot of really great stuff that we talked about. Oh my gosh, we're, we're probably going to have him on here five or six times. I mean, so many good things that he talked about. Uh, love this episode. Hopefully you got some good things out of it. If you have a question, comment, or you want to uh, follow up with Jason, please reach out to us at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.